I switched versions on you today. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the New King James uh, because it, it translated the, the, the First Thessalonians passage um, in a way that I thought was a little more helpful for the point that I wanted to make. <clears throat> but uh, our first text is Matthew chapter 10, and, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24 uh, and verse 10 and following. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And then from 1 Thessalonians, the, letter to, the first letter to the Thessalonians, way back in the back of your Bible. And then chapter 2. Uh, I think something's wrong here. I think it's maybe 2 Thessalonians. Did I do a typo? Ah, yes, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Somebody did a typo. I probably did a typo. <clears throat> now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by many, any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us ourselves in your word and that you would show us yourself in your word. We confess and believe what your Bible says about itself, that it is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes forth and accomplishes everything that you purpose for it to do and then it doesn't return to you void. It always does exactly what you want. And so when we need to be corrected, when we need to be changed on the inside, when we need to be um, encouraged, we look to you, and then we look to your word, knowing that you work together in this wonderful way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In um, <clears throat> 1997, a young Christian author wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, in which he attempted to lay out a biblically-based Christian approach to dating and to relationships, especially for high school and college-aged young people. And he went on to publish five more books and become the pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, which is a megachurch. And he pastored that church from 2004 to 2015. His name is Joshua Harris. In 2015, during a controversy about how the church had handled allegations of sexual abuse within the church, Mr. Harris chose to resign 
and he stated that he wanted to pursue a theological education at Regent College in Vancouver. He had, did not have even a college degree, much less a seminary degree, but he was the pastor of a megachurch. Well, just a few years ago, in 2019, Harris announced that he and his wife of 21 years were separating due to what they called, quote, significant changes that have taken place in both of us. And then a few weeks later, on Instagram, he said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. In September of this year, Josh's ex-wife Shannon published her memoirs and confirmed that she is no longer a Christian either. Now, these are just some of the most well-known examples of a movement that's going on today all around us known as deconstruction. Young people raised in Christian homes, raised in the church, people who had earlier in life professed saving faith in Christ Jesus are walking away from the faith. They are publicly repudiating it. Sometimes they are referred to as exvangelicals. The Bible refers to this by another name, apostasy. And it is a 100% deadly sin. What is apostasy? Well, the, the Greek word behind the English word is apostasia, and it means defection, revolt, or falling away. In the American context, there have been two great waves of apostasy in the church. In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, a great wave of unbelief swept through the churches in America, which today we call the mainline denominations. The Presbyterian Church USA, the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church, the American Baptist Church, and the Congregationalist Churches, which became the UCC. This wave of unbelief first rose in the universities in Germany, and it moved from there to the universities in the United Kingdom, and then to places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton here in the United States. And from those towers of higher learning, they spread to all the seminaries of all the denominations nearly in the whole country. Early on, this movement of unbelief went by the name of modernism. And so if you've ever heard, for instance, of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, this was a sharp disagreement and debate over many years between people who uh, held to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, things like the deity of Jesus Christ, his bodily resurrection from the grave, the virgin birth, the reality of miracles, the authority of the scriptures, you know, basic doctrines like that. And the modernists, the people who wanted to not believe all that stuff, but still keep a church of some kind. Today, we don't call it modernism. Today, we call it theological liberalism. And this is not the kind of liberalism of Barack Obama. This is theological liberalism. And the whole project of theological liberalism is fundamentally based on the question that the serpent asked Eve in the garden. Hath God said? Did God really say that? Did God really do that? No, surely not. 
Surely the stories in the Bible aren't factual. I mean, at best, they're allegories or pious fiction. Miracles are not possible. Science has now proven that miracles are not possible. Uh, neither are virgin births or dead people rising. We, we don't believe any of that stuff anymore. That's a childhood faith for uh, a people in their childhood spiritually. We're going to grow out of that. Oh, we want to keep the external structure of the church. It has a lot of social influence. It has a lot of money. It has a lot of power. It has colleges and universities, which we can co-opt to form the minds of young people in the way that we want and to try and form the kind of society that we want. Yeah, we want to keep the church. But rather than being honest unbelievers, we'll just colonize, co-opt, and seize control of the churches. And they did. And most of the true believers eventually left. They either went to independent churches or they formed new denominations like ours, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And like the one that I came from before I was ordained in this denomination, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. The United Methodists have the same thing going on right now. So does the increasingly liberal Reformed Church in America, the Dutch Reformed Church. They've now got a new splinter denomination or split off of the conservatives. And it's interesting to watch the, the, the announcements from their headquarters because they keep going, well, all the conservative churches that left were also the churches that had all the people and the money. And now we've got to figure out how to run a denomination with a bunch of empty churches and no people and no money. You've got conservative Lutherans, you've got conservative Congregationalists, and the Episcopalians who left are now called Anglicans. The old denominations are dying, and they're dying quickly, and that is not a bad thing. But a strange thing has begun to happen in the last 10 or 15 years. The children and the grandchildren of the faithful Bible-believing churches who built these new churches and denominations are retreading and resurrecting theological liberalism just like it was in the early 20th century or worse. Or they're dropping out of church in droves. Or they're deconstructing and deconverting and publicly renouncing the Lord Jesus Christ and his church and his message and his people. In other words, they are going apostate. And now the evangelical church in the United States is beginning to die. What's going on? Jesus talks about this in two of his parables. In one parable, there's a farmer who sows a crop of wheat in a field. And one night after the wheat seed is sown, an enemy sneaks in and he sows weed seeds in with the wheat. This particular weed that Jesus is referencing is called bearded darnel or false wheat. It's also called poison darnel, and it is virtually indistinguishable from wheat when it sprouts. Even professional botanists have a hard time telling the difference. And you can't tell the difference between the wheat and the weed until it forms the ear of grain, which is where the seed kernels are formed. The, the grain of uh, bearded darnel is purplish black, 
rather than yellow-brown, and it grows not straight up from the stem, but sideways off the stem. And it is also very vulnerable to a certain fungus that is called ergot, which is poisonous. And if you ingest ergot, it causes seizures and painful spasms and psychosis and even gangrene. It causes the, 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 uh, the arteries and the veins to constrict in your body and it can cut off the circulation to your legs and, or your arms or someplace like that. And they, the tissue just dies and you get gangrene. In other words, it looks just like wheat until its fruit manifests. And then it shows itself to be a toxic pretender by its fruit. And it grows in with the wheat naturally. And if you harvest it with the wheat and you grind its seeds into bread along with the wheat seeds, it will poison whoever eats it. And this poisoning still happens today. In 1951, uh, five people died in a French village from ergot poisoning. There was a large outbreak of it in Ethiopia in 2001. There have been smaller outbreaks here in the United States that affected cattle, but not human beings, just even within the last five or ten years here. So here you have a noxious weed that looks like wheat and mostly grows in stands of wheat, which can get harvested with the wheat if you're not careful, and if ground together with the wheat to make flour, can kill you. In a similar way, he tells a story of a sower who goes out to sow seeds. Some seed, I'm sorry, rather the seed falls on four different kinds of soil. It's called the parable of the sower, but it really ought to be called the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils. The seed falls on four different kinds of soil. It falls on hard ground, and the birds snatch it away. It falls on rocky ground, and a little seedling springs up quickly in the warm, shallow soil, but it quickly withers and dies. And then there's some that's sown on thorny soil, and the seed sprouts, and it grows a bit, but the thorns choke it out, and it is never fruitful. And then there's some that's sown on good soil, and it grows, and it produces an abundant harvest in varying amounts. The, the smallest is 30 times what was sown, some 60 times, and some 100 times. And so even the poorest part of the good soil produced 30 pounds of grain for every one pound of seed. And the best part of the soil produced 100 pounds for every pound of seed. And Jesus explains both parables. The seed is the word. The sower is the preacher of the word. The four soils are four different kinds of heart. And the focus here is on the question, what kind of soil are you? What kind of heart do you have? What, kind, what, what happens when, when the word hits your heart? The first two soils, the hard heart and the shallow heart, these people are clearly lost. The bird snatches it away before it even has a chance to get into the soil, and, and it springs up quickly and then withers and dies. These people are, are clearly lost. They're clearly going to hell. The fourth soil, the good soil, that is clearly a picture of salvation. It's the third soil, the thorny soil, that confuses some folks. Some folks look and say, look, there's, there's green, there's life. 
So this person is saved. And that's where we need to be reminded that the focus is not primarily on the plant. The focus is primarily on the soil, that is the heart. The question you're supposed to ask is, what kind of soil am I? What is the word producing in my heart? Is it producing fruit? And Jesus tells us what the thorns are. He, he says it in Luke 8.14. He says the, the things that keep the word from being fruitful are cares, riches, and the pleasures of life. What is, what is Jesus saying here? Let's mush these two parables together because the, the, the parable of the, of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus says, you know, these are about the, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil coexisting together in one place. Let's, let's mush these two parables together. What's the overall message? The overall message is you're going to find two sorts of people living in the church. There's going to be people who both profess Jesus and actually possess Jesus, and then there's going to be those who profess Jesus, but they don't actually possess Jesus. And how can you know which one you are? Jesus says you look at the fruit. What kind of fruit is your life manifesting as you sit under the teaching of the word? No fruit? Poisonous fruit? Or the fruit of the Spirit? I love, in, in God's providence, that we've just been going with the kids to the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit, everybody? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. What's the fruit? Jesus puts it another way in, in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Same concept, different metaphor from agriculture. What's the goal, the outcome of a saved life? Fruit. That's what God wants. He wants fruit. What's fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He wants good fruit. He wants fruit in as much abundance as you are capable of. Now, let's go back to the parable of the soils for a minute. What about soil number two and soil number three, the shallow soil and the thorny soil? Well, those are people in the church who are not saved. They're professors 
not possessors. The thorny soil is folks who stay in the church for one reason or another, but never bear fruit. They keep coming week after week, but they aren't changing. They're ordinary, decent, religious sinners. They are only able to abide in the church during periods of relative peace and prosperity, where there's no cost to being a part of the visible church. It's possible in times of peace and plenty to be lukewarm, to snooze quietly on the brink of hell. But times for the church are not always peaceful and prosperous. They have been in this country, but you forget that we serve a Christ who is the God of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And many of our brothers and sisters have a very hard life. During times of persecution, the professor who is not a possessor is suddenly in danger of being lumped in with the true children of God and getting their beatings and their prison sentences and their fines and their martyrdoms. And he doesn't want that. So he visibly falls away. He apostatizes. Now, persecution is not the only occasion for apostasy. Some, like today's ex-evangelicals, are under no persecution. They just hate Christ so much that they turn on him and repudiate him. And they usually blame the church or God's people for their apostasy. They say, those people are so awful. And if they weren't so awful, I would still believe in their Jesus. But I see how awful they are. And uh, they've just talked me out of this Jesus thing. No, no. No, no. I'm not saying that the people of God have their act together at all. We're in a very weakened and backslidden condition as a church, as a people. But that doesn't cause people to abandon Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 that as the end draws near, several things will happen. First of all, he says persecutions will arise. Tribulations will arise. And the worldlings will hate us. And they will hate us with a vicious hatred. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul's, Paul tells us that the day of the Lord won't come until the falling away. And this is why I wanted the New King James Version. The, the ESV doesn't translate that as, as helpfully, as literally. There, there will be a falling away or a great apostasy, which happens first. The scenario that is envisioned seems to be this. The church looks externally like a significant portion of the population. There are churches all over the landscape, and they're full on Sunday mornings. There are Christian schools that are apparently flourishing. The church seems to be a significant cultural force. The gospel seems to have made great inroads. Politicians come and court us and ask for our votes. We raise money easily and in significant amounts for the things that we think are important. We have a seat at the cultural table of power. We are influential. And then the culture starts unraveling. And hostility increases. 
and we begin to lose our cultural power. If you've got your Bible open, turn to 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. In the meantime, what's going on in the church? Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, and having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Turn back one book to, or turn forward one book to 2 Timothy and chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 1, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of the good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Last one, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy and verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So you have outside of the church rising antipathy. Within the church, all kinds of selfishness, all kinds of self-absorption, all kinds of doctrinal heresy, doctrines of demons. And all of a sudden, people abandon the church in droves. They turn on God's people. They turn on the Savior they professed to love. And the number of people left who take the name of Jesus and actually long for his appearing is a tiny fraction of the great crowds that once thronged through the church doors. Does any of this sound vaguely familiar to you? Does any of it have a contemporary ring? A hundred years ago, this church was a huge force in this community. We have upstairs in one of the closets up there by my office, we have all of these, these paper records. They're like artifacts from the history of this church, uh, much of it going back to the early 1900s, like people didn't have telephones yet, and they're advertising their businesses in the church directory. And the place was full. Everybody went to church. You, you may not have gone here, but everybody went to some church every Sunday. That was the respectable thing to do. Everybody went. It's not that way anymore, is it? And what we've endured since COVID, what the whole church in the U.S. has endured. People just like, eh, 
there's, a, there's no reason to go back. I can watch stuff on Facebook. I don't need to get out of my pajamas. I, can, I don't even need to get up on a Sunday morning and watch it on Facebook. I can just watch the video later when I feel like it never. Most churches in the U.S. have lost 30% of their people since COVID. 30%. What's going on? Apostasy. Apostasy. I have an even harder word, unfortunately. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. According to Hebrews 6, there is no hope whatsoever for apostates. None. And this rips my heart out, frankly. I know and love a young man and a young woman who professed Christ and then years later publicly repudiated him. And I can no longer even bring myself to pray for them. Precisely because Hebrews chapter 6 says what it says. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God Put him to an open shame. It is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. That passage kills me. I hate that. But it says what it says. Loved ones, a true Christian may backslide like Peter or David. They may sin grievously and be restored. But a Judas is doomed. Young people, listen to me. Do not commit the sin of apostasy. Do not deceive yourself that if you do that, Everything will be okay in the end. It will not. And that could become a real temptation for you in the near future. That's precisely why the Bible says over and over again, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, there are some legitimate questions here that I'm not going to go into in the interest of time about how can a person... Uh, hold to both um, the doctrine of eternal security and deal with passages like Hebrews chapter uh, 6. And we can explore those questions later if you want to. I don't want to do it during Advent. But basically, an unbeliever can still have significant experiences of God and can even have the activity of the Holy Spirit in his or her life. 
but it's not a saving activity of the Holy Spirit in our understanding. But I encourage you to, to look at that passage, though. Do not think that eternal security means I can pray a prayer and live however I want, and it'll be okay. That is not, that is not biblical Calvinism. The doctrine of Calvinism, of eternal security, says that God's Spirit is so powerful and His grace is so active in your life that when you truly come to Him, you cannot help but be transformed in certain ways. And if you are not being transformed in those ways, you do not have the Holy Spirit. That's why, friends, Jesus says the proof of a disciple is not doctrine. Because the Pharisees knew a lot of doctrine, and a lot of it was right. Jesus said, listen to them, but don't do what they do. He said, listen to them, because their doctrine was right. Their life wasn't. The test of a disciple is something that no one who is not regenerated by the Holy Spirit can do. Love. Genuine, costly, agape love. That is the test of discipleship, says Jesus and John chapter 14, and says Jesus, it says John in 1 John chapter 3, I believe it is. Love, particularly love for your fellow believers in Christ. That is the test of a disciple. You can't fake that. What kind of soil are you? What are you manifesting? What kind of soil are you? What kind of soil am I? Let he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Father, as we think about the return of Jesus Christ, the second advent, which we celebrate and long for during this time, I pray that there would be none who slumber on the edge of hell. I pray that there would be none who think that all is well when it is not. And I pray, Father, there would be none who profess but do not possess and then walk away and crucify again the Son of God with their defections. Please, Father, let that not be any person here. For a backslider can be, convert, can be forgiven and an unregenerate person who's been in the church can be regenerated and saved, but an apostate, there's no hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.